This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. For cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. We got a white lightning, mountain spirits, corn liquor, skull cat, tiger spit, hooch, Sugarhead, Blockade Whiskey, Ruckus Juice, City Gin, Shine, Steam Whiskey, and Sub Liquor. Whatever you call it, this stuff used to be made illegally. That's changed. Now distillers are making the same clear liquor, often using the same processes and grains, but selling it legally. Legal moonshine production in the South, funny as that sounds, has exploded. Like a cheap radiator running too hot for too long. These producers now sell the story as much as the liquor itself. I'm John T. Edge. And I'm Melissa Hall. We're your hosts for Gravy. 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 Production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South. So last night, we went to the liquor store, for research purposes, of course, and there we found the moonshine shelf. And and it's not even a shelf. It is six shelves, higher than my head, between the Fancy Pants bourbon and the whipped cream-flavored vodka and the Jägermeister, there was this tall, tall stack of every sort of moonshine imaginable. And even better than the moonshine itself is the way the moonshine is selling itself. It is the most massive collection of hillbilly nostalgia imaginable. This said from Kentucky woman. And I know some hillbilly nostalgia. We met Bubba from Idaho in a ZZ Top getup. We met Digger from Gatlinburg in overalls. Junior in his fast car and Tim in his dog named Camo. For this episode of Gravy, Arena Joroff explores what now sells in the booming moonshine business. Brian Call is a seventh-generation distiller. He makes moonshine, legally, in a back room of a warehouse in Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Oh, it smells amazing. Yeah. <laughs> a mix of grains and yeast that Brian calls mash is sitting in huge wooden bats that kind of look like 1,000-gallon hot tubs. He built them, but the mash is his dad's recipe. So what's in here? We got a uh, cornmeal barley malt, uh, cracked wheat, and a little bit of sugar. And that's what your dad would use? Yep, that's what he done when he made moonshine. The yeast eats up the sugars to produce the alcohol. The mixture is fizzing audibly at work. That's the exact same recipe. He'd tell me stories when uh, They'd be walking to the steel site, you know, out in the woods. It'd sound like it was raining. You could hear it before you get to it. It'd be so loud. So why is it so important for you? You mentioned you keep the same recipe. You go to the same mill to get your corn. Why is all that important to you? 
Well, that's all I know. That's what I know. (laughs) Not everything is the same. For one, it's indoors. And the place is immaculate. Dad, they'd tell me stories. Sometimes they'd go and uh, they'd like to have a possum or anything in their mash. You know, out in the woods, these little critters always getting in there. They just throw them out. Then there's the matter of the still itself. This is not a collapsible get-up on a creek bank. It's a 2,100-gallon giant that Brian designed. My dad's nickname was the bull, so we nicknamed her still uh, the bull. When the yeast eats up all the sugars, he'll pump the mash into the bowl. Heat will evaporate the alcohol, sending the vapor through something called a thumper, which distills it again, and finally through copper coils submerged in cold water. As the vapor rides the coils down like a tightly wound pool slide, the alcohol returns to a liquid state. When it's time to bottle, his dad's symbolic touch on everything in that room will be just as important as Brian's technical expertise if not more. That's because what Brian and other legal moonshine distillers are bottling is not just alcohol. Most of these contemporary legal moonshine distillers and producers are, they're selling a kind of, it's really a a lost narrative. They're selling a a piece of American nostalgia. That's Matt Bondurant. He's a writer who, like Brian, comes from moonshine-making people. His grandfather, along with other relatives, was in the business. He wrote about his family in his novel, The Wettest County in the World, which became the movie Lawless. The packaging and set and selling of Moonshine really depends upon a selling of a kind of a narrative of a rebellious outlaw, distinctly Southern sort of figure. The actual physical packaging of many Moonshine producers helps convey that narrative. It's old-timey. Square mason jars, handleware jugs, labels painted with ramshackle homesteads, XXX spelling danger that's now been watered down. What moonshine is is becoming, you know, distorted in, in many ways and commodified in ways that I think would not be appealing to people like my grandfather, for example. But I also understand that's the inevitable nature of capitalism, among other things. This new version of Moonshine invokes the past in awkward, sometimes contradictory ways. For one, it plays an idea of a yokel backwoods southerner, something many southerners have tried to distance themselves from. On the other, it commodifies real overalls-wearing southerners that actually live the lives being marketed as Moonshine. But without those things, Matt says there's nothing to sell. Many people, I think, so-called moonshine experts, aficionados, et cetera, won't say this. But, you know, without all that, if you take all that away, what you've got is a just an extremely high-content corn whiskey with a very sort of flat flavor profile. It smells just like rotten corn, and it'll burn you all the way down. <laughs> There's not a whole lot going for it. He's not knocking any particular producers. In fact, after the success of his book and the movie, his own cousin started a distillery. Robert Bondurant of Bondurant Brothers Distillery says, yeah, the story Matt helped excavate gives him an advantage over other producers. Let's say if we've got two tables side by side and I'm at one table and you've got somebody at another table who just decided they wanted to make moonshine. When they ask them about it, they can say, well, we just started making moonshine. Well, they ask me about it and I can say, well, you know, I'm the third generation. My grandfather and great uncles did this in the Great Depression and Prohibition. They went from bootleggers to state's witness in the largest trial in the state of Virginia. And 
then there was a movie made about them and a book written about them. And, you know, that really, they're like, wow, that's pretty cool, you know. But yeah, I'm going to buy your moonshine. You'd be surprised how that really helps. The Bondurant Brothers Distillery is housed in an old mill in Chase City, Virginia. Black tape marks off the so-called bond zone, where Robert keeps the booze he hasn't paid taxes on yet. It's a federal rule. A wall separates the distilling area with its two stills from the tasting room. That's another legal requirement. The bureaucratic minutiae strike me as funny in a business as historically lawless as moonshine. Legal requirements bring headaches of their own, says Robert. It doesn't trust me. You don't have a clue. He leads me to the bar and opens a bottle of his basic clear shine. Let me see here. We can drink it straight. He pours a thimbleful. You can smell. It's not crazy corny. I sip, and this warm feeling, like perfectly pliant silly putty melting and filling every nook of my innards, spreads inside me. It's really sweet. I had just spent an hour listening, enchanted, to Robert's stories about his grandfather. The man loved to dance, he was a little showy, and in 1935 took the stand in court to testify against local law enforcement for trying to extort him and other Virginia moonshiners. The warmth in my belly feels a little magical. Later, I wonder if I was tasting the liquor or the story. It's like a product that really existed for a a, a period of time and then kind of went away and now it's coming back. That's Matt Bondurant again. So it's almost like you've, we've like unearthed something. We're bringing something back out of the past. And so if you're going to do that, then, you know, having some, some strong connection to that past, whether that's the way that it's made, you know, the ingredients or something like that, or like a, his, like a lineage, you know, like mine, like my cousins, you know, um, that, that becomes a major selling point because what people want is they want that past. Hey, this is John T., here with Gravy co-host Melissa Hall. We'll get back to the story in a minute. Right now, I want to talk about why moonshining got so big in the South. In the 1700s, the first ever tax imposed by the very young federal government was a tax on distilled spirits. Farmers fought the tax in what would come to be known as the Whiskey Rebellion, but ultimately, they lost. But afterward, you see a lot of farmers started moving deeper into the interior, North Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, getting away from being taxed for making something that they felt they ought to be able to make with an output of their farms. And that really drove a lot of uh, settlement further into the heart of the South. That's Kathleen Purvis, whose latest book, Distilling the South, is all about Southern craft distilling. She says that Scotch-Irish immigrants brought that skill to the South, and the moonshine flowed. By grinding that corn up, using it as a fermentation base, you could turn it into alcohol, and then you could sell that alcohol for a whole lot more money, or you could transport it more easily. Various taxes were repealed, then reestablished, then prohibition took hold. Appalachian distillers fought the law, and the law won. But that didn't stop them from making liquor. Americans have always had this sort of rugged individualist thing. You look at our history, and that's something that we venerate. Illegal distillation became the way you did it. Illicitness became integral to the spirit. Some people believe that technically moonshine is illegal alcohol. 
When we come back, our reporter, Irina Zhorov, shares how the Call family is telling their tale. But first... What will be on your breakfast table this Sunday? Picture this. Thick-cut, juicy bacon, crispy-edged hash brown potatoes, mom's buttermilk pancakes and sausage hash all cooked in lodge skillets. Lodge Manufacturing of South Pittsburgh, Tennessee has kept cooking traditions alive since 1896. For every Sunday breakfast of your dreams and Lodge's support of this podcast, we thank them. Hi, it's Melissa. And if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead, follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and tell them Gravy Said Hey! About three years ago, Brian Call was cruising in semi-retirement when he went to his wife, Laura, and asked if she wanted to open a distillery. Good gracious. (laughs) That's what Laura said. But, you know, I told him, I said, you want to do it? Let's do it. Brian would make the booze. Laura became, in large part, the operation's marketing brains. She set up the distillery like a call family museum. They sell an intimacy with their story. That's what a lot of people, when they come in and they take a tour, is they, they love the history. They love the family history. They love seeing me and Brian, usually I'm the one giving the tour. Um, They love having a family member give them a tour and talk about it. Brian traces his roots to Reverend Dan Call, who took in a young Jack Daniel on his Tennessee farm. It was at Call still that Daniel learned how to make whiskey under the tutelage of an enslaved man named Nearest Green. Brian is the Reverend's great, 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 great grandson. A sepia portrait of him with a bird-like neck beard hangs on the wall. Portraits, including a mugshot, of other family members adorn the walls, too. But Brian's dad, Willie Claycall, is the only predecessor Brian actually met and knew. And the Call family distillery is in large part an homage to him. Unlike the reverence, Clay's was a proper moonshine operation. In other words, illegal. There wasn't a lot of jobs around here in Wilkes County, and uh, he could make more money hauling moonshine one night than you could work in a job what you'd make in a month. So that was his goal, just to support his family and, uh, you know, a better quality of life. Brian grew up around Clay's Moonshine and Brandy Stills. I remember when I was real little, my dad uh, grabbed me and we, I helped him grind some apples up, making some apple brandy one year. And dad always said to, you know, you lawyers and people like that, yeah, like good apple brandy around Christmas time. Brian was so little he could barely shovel them in the grinder. That was one of my first memories. By the time Brian was a bit more grown, Clay had largely traded in moonshine for cattle and farming. But he taught Brian everything he knew and shared his stories. Plus, he kept all his moonshine stuff. He never throwed nothing away. 
And that's a good thing, so I got all this old-timey stuff they used years ago. Brian walks me through the distillery. Clay's overalls hang on one wall. He was a big guy. There are the containers Clay kept his mash in, and paintings of Clay and his friend Junior Johnson working. The crown jewel of Clay's collection is the cars. He made a lot of moonshine, and his love, he loved to haul it. He loved fast cars, and uh, he said he never was worried about getting caught by the law because he had something to go on, you know. There's a 1940s coupe and a sleek black 66 Dodge. They all still run. The day I'm there, they're polishing the Dodge for an event. This car's got over 700 horsepower. Dad and Junior said this car had run over uh, 200 mile an hour. They'd soup up the engines and uh, the springs on them. They always put stiffer springs where it hold the load level when they had it loaded down with uh, moonshine in the back. And they put little toggle switches underneath the lights there. If the law got after him at night, he could t- turn his brake lights off. And when he's on his pedal real hard, they wouldn't know he was braking. He could shoot down the road and they'd overshoot him and kind of little tricks like that to get away from him. Moonshine haulers gave rise to NASCAR. And family lore says Clay was such a good driver, he had a shot at making it. But he didn't see any money in NASCAR at the time, so he stuck with running Moonshine. His favorite car was a 1961 powder blue Chrysler New Yorker. My dad said all the miles on these cars come from home liquor. They went for, you know, joy riding. He kept, he kept them hid, and he'd go get them when he's going, you know, make a run. This car's got like seventy some thousand on. That's all liquor runs. There's always been, to me, kind of a um, mystery and a little, you know, excitement behind moonshiners and what they did and and everything and they just it's almost like stepping back I think for them to see the actual moonshine cars and you know be right up there at them is very thrilling for people Um, because you know moonshine even when people still sip the moonshine it's a it's almost like a um, we're doing something we shouldn't be doing. She encourages people's imaginations. She printed up a big police lineup background so visitors could take their own mugshots after viewing the cars. When they buy a jar of the Carl Sour Mash moonshine, they'll find Clay's face on it. He's scowling and looks mean. Laura says it's just for show. The image came from a photo taken at a family wedding. Clay was just squinting at the sun. All this mythology, though, sells bottles, especially to tourists with only an arm's length familiarity with the history. But if it sounds like they're turning real family history into hokey stereotypes, Laura says, not so. I wanted people to see our family. I want people to hear the stories because there's a stigma behind a moonshiner, you know, that they are backwoods, you know, they don't didn't go to school, they don't know much, you know, this was easy. That's all not true. These men were very intelligent men. They may not have went or finished school, but they were some of the smartest men I knew. And moonshine in the the woods back in the day was not easy at all. But I want people to see who they are. And, you know, they were not mean people. They, you know, went out to kill anybody. They were just making a living. And so it's very important for people, for me, for people to see who the Call family is. It's business, she says, but it's also personal. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be here today. Willie Clay Call died nearly a decade ago. 
He spent his final day making moonshine with his son at a legal shop where Brian worked before starting his own distillery. I asked Laura what she thinks Clay would make of their legal moonshine operation. I think he would he would find it very funny. I think that he would get a hoot out of this, that we're paying tax on something <laughs> that he fought and he ran so hard not to pay. Um, but I think he would be very proud of it, too. I think if he was here, he would be here every day. She says at home she has three jars of shine Clay made before he passed. I've just stuck them back for my kids, and I've wrote on the top of them um, Clay's last run. And therefore, our children, when they get married, they each get their own jar. Those jars are not for sale. Wouldn't it be great to hear that song, the moonshine song, the Mountain Dew song? What moonshine song, John T? <laughs> you have to know the song. They call it that good old Mountain Dew, and them that refuse it refuse. Stop. <laughs> I think we to talk about the jug. You let me talk about the jug. Okay. Today, Gravy was reported and produced by Irina Zoroff. Boone, North Carolina's newest resident. We need to thank a lot of folks, don't we, Melissa? Yes. Today we thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music, and William York for Mountain Dew, most famously performed by the Stanley Brothers and just minutes ago performed by you, John T. Edge. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. Mary Beth Lassiter serves as our publisher. And Holly Reynolds is SFA's fairy godmother. Visit southernfoodways.org to glimpse the other end of the whiskey spectrum and watch Joe York's film Asleep in the Wood, a film about one of the rarest bourbons in the world, Pappy Van Winkle. Which you should never mix with Mountain Dew. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. May your gravy be good. Oh, they call it that old Mountain Dew. And those who refuse it are few Well, I know I've done wrong The temptation is strong When they call for that mountain